Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. I'm most happy in a landfill site or at an industrial estate looking in the bins, (laughs) trying to work out um, what problems there might be. Yes, we're in the delightful company of Cressy Wesling this week, co-founder of Luxury Goods Business, Elvis and Cressy, uh, the company making handbags out of old fire hoses. Stay tuned. Hello, yes, welcome back. This is episode 28 of The Better Business Show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming back to us, regular listeners. Um, So we have the usual format this week. We're going to hit you with another great story from the world of sustainable business in the form of Elvis and Cressy. Uh, We'll have our usual 10-minute roundup with Vicky Knowles, looking at all the different stories about who's doing what and why. Um, And we'll also have the fourth and penultimate part of our big ideas for a sustainable future in association with Terrafinity. So all of that coming up very soon. So if you haven't already done so, please do sign up to the Better Business Show newsletter. Head over to our homepage right now, betterbusiness.show. Scroll beneath all of the 28 episodes that we've got listed there uh, and just give us your email address. Just fill fill in the form there and we'll send that to you every Friday. Uh, You'll also get our cheat sheet, which I've been talking about over the last few weeks, uh, and that's coming to you. So give us your email address and you'll get that exclusively. Now, the year was 2004, and fresh from setting up a green packaging business in Hong Kong, Cressy Wesling had arrived in London to work out what to do next in her life. She was also in training for the London Marathon, with her running schedule taking her all over the capital as she prepared for the gruelling 26-mile race. One day, she decided that one of her longer training runs could be combined with a trip to Croydon, Old Town in South London, home to one of the London Fire Brigade's largest depots. It was a hot and sticky day, and as Cressy slowed her run and set eyes on her destination, she saw a mounting of old fire hoses coiled up on the roof of the building, shining a glowing red in the warm sun. She thought, that is beautiful, and I have to have them. And have them she did. A few months before her chance meeting with this beautiful mountain of old fire hoses, in a bid to better understand the the impact of production techniques being adopted by her packaging company, Cressy had enrolled on an ISO 14001 auditing training course. And it was on this course that she met with a bunch of fire brigades Uh, Members who proceeded to explain the challenges the organisation faces. Old leaky buildings, lots of big appliances to run, dealing with plenty of chemistry. Oh, and the hoses are a big problem, they told her. They have to be decommissioned at the end of their life and it all ends up in landfill. The revelation was music to Cressy's ears and the chance conversation would change her new life in London forever. Fast forward several more years and Elvis and Cressy is firmly established in the luxury goods market, picking up many plaudits for collecting different waste streams and creating beautiful products with them. I jumped on the phone with Cressy this week to get an update on what she's now doing with the business and for those of you coming to this incredible business for the first time to give you the full story. Here's my conversation with Cressy. Cressy, thanks so much for joining me here on The Better Business Show. Um, Now, most of my guests on the show I'm coming to for the first time, but with your business, Elvis and Cressy, 
it's a business I'm very much aware of. I know uh, plenty about. I've written about the business you know, many times, and we've we've caught up regularly. So I've been witness to the kind of the evolution of of this business of yours for the last few years. Um, but there will be some listeners, obviously tuning in, that won't have heard of Elvis and Cressy. So why don't we start there? How, how do you kind of usually sell the business when a stranger asks you what you do? Uh, what do you normally tell them? Uh, thanks, thanks for that. That's a good, a good introduction. Um, I normally tell them that we do three things: we reclaim materials that would otherwise go to landfill, we transform them into beautiful things. And then after we sell them, we donate 50% of the profits to charity. And, and our most iconic example is that we collect all of London's decommissioned fire hoses. We turn them into a range of uh, luxury accessories, so bags, belts, bullets, things like that. And 50% of the profits from that range go to the firefighters' charity. Right. And the fire hose story is obviously one that you're most famous for, I guess. But uh, whenever we've spoken in the past, you've always said that, you know, this is what it's all about. It's about removing that waste out of the system at scale. How much waste are you currently able to process purely from fire hoses right now? Well, fire hoses, I think it's a niche problem in the UK. It's certainly not a big one. When we started tackling it, we thought, gosh, 10 tons a year is going to be a lot. But now, 10 years in, 10 tons is not very much, which is why we've had to um, diversify and collect other materials. So fire hose as a problem for the UK is not necessarily that large. But I think what was the most interesting aspect of it for us was that it was something we could fix, and perhaps only we could fix. Uh, We started collecting it in 2005, but by 2010, we had fixed it. We had solved it. We were able to trade enough to to take all of it every year. Right, right. And is, is it just from London or is it from the rest of the UK as well? So after 2010, we started collecting beyond uh, London. And now we collect uh, across the UK and also um, the occasional foreign hose. <laughs> okay, okay. And tell us about the other, the other waste materials you, that you like to, to get your hands on. Obviously not just fire hose, but there's, there's all sorts, isn't there? Parachute, silk and coffee sacks, yeah. shoe boxes. What, what, else are you, what else are you looking at? I think we, we just go on an adventure with some of these materials. You know, I'm, I'm most happy in a landfill site or at an industrial estate looking in the bins, trying to work out um, what problems there might be. And what, what we tend to focus on are things that just nobody is collecting or things that maybe could be collected and traditionally recycled, but just deserve another shot. So, you know, we collect coffee sacks and, and, and we did a massive program for about five years with Sainsbury's on coffee sack reclamation. We made a bag for life for them. And that was a, a wonderful program because we were, we were, I mean, we were just taking in tons of material every week. And coffee sack as a material certainly shouldn't go to landfill, but it was and probably still is um, because it's a, it's a dry grass. So it's an ideal fuel. It's ideal for composting. And it just, uh, unfortunately, um, at the time that we started it, there was not enough industrial composting in the country to take care of it. So we generally look for things that really sh- that have a great story, really should have a second life, but don't. We collect shoeboxes, um, and I mean shoeboxes is an in- to me an interesting one because we collect them primarily from shoe stores that cater to an, an older customer. Um, because what they like to do is go in, take the shoes off that have worn out, and buy a new pair, walk out with a new pair, and leave the box behind. Right. 
So, right. so we, we collect shoe boxes in bulk from um, one, one particular shoe store in Bournemouth. Uh, and then we collect tea sacks. Tea is, um, you know, so, so obviously this is a nation of tea drinkers. Tea, people think, comes into the country in chests, but hasn't really done that since the 60s. It comes in in four layers of craft paper laminated to foil, laminated to a polymer, which is why you can't recycle the paper. But we've found amazing uses for tea paper. And, and just after, I mean, we've probably been working with tea paper seven years now, we've just found a way to print on it. So we are able to make our brochures with reclaimed tea paper. Wow. And, and, and until we were able to, so, so I kid you not, uh, um, we have never done a brochure before. And it was right. because I wasn't interested in, in you know, good inks on recycled paper. For us, if we couldn't do reclaimed, we weren't doing it. So <laughs> it's taken us a long time yeah. to get to the brochure. Yeah. We collect auction banners and um, parachute silk. And printing blankets is a new and expanding one for us. Um, this is a, a byproduct of the offset printing industry. And then probably our biggest uh project, which is really going to take up so much of our time, is our leather reclamation project. We started a couple of years ago. We've now got an amazing system for turning seemingly useless scrap bits of leather into a component that can be, that can basically allow us, like Lego style, to make hides all over again. And it's getting, gaining a lot of momentum, um, and, it, and, it, and it needs to. So fire hose, 10 tons a year. Leather in Western Europe, leather waste in yes, in Western Europe, thirty five thousand tons a year. Wow, wow. So, so that's that's my job for the next decade. Really, is how am I going to scale to deal with that problem? Right, right. And and what is the, you know, how have you started that process? I know you you had your sort of leather rugs that you you were yep. making. What what else is to come? How how do you envisage scaling that up? Well, uh, to be honest, if we were the world's best rug sellers, we could do it with rugs alone. Um, right. But I, I think also that's not necessarily interesting enough, given that we've come up with this Lego-style component system. So we have been, uh, while selling the rugs, uh, we're using sort of rug sales to finance all of our R&D on this one so far. We are just prototyping like crazy, everything from upholstery to homeware to um, anything you can possibly imagine, to, right through to an, an, uh, an accessory range. So we're trying it in every format that we possibly can. And I think we've got some prototypes that are reaching their six months of testing, and, and that's when we'll start to see products come out. It's, it's always a long haul for us because we don't product test on the consumer. We product test with um, you know, friends of the brand who are happy right. to take stuff off stuff home and destroy them and yeah. let us know what the problems are uh, but it, yeah it means that we don't launch products that quickly but we we do launch them with confidence when they launch right and and looking at all these different waste streams I mean, what is it that gets you most excited is it about you know the ability to kind of eliminate waste streams or is it is it about the products or does, does your kind of interest sort of wane between the two and so what you know what gets you most excited I, I think, you know, Elvis would never forgive me if I didn't answer this absolutely truthfully. What gets me excited is a vision of the future where we have a completely circular economy. Nothing is thrown away. Everything is, 
used and used again and used again. We have enormously successful legislation that doesn't allow us to produce anything that can't be recycled or used again. Mm. And everything is powered by fossil fuel, by, sorry, by renewable energy instead of fossil fuels. And nobody fights anybody and we've developed some massively wonderful apps so that everyone can find the love of their life and nobody has to be unhappy anymore you know that what excites me is a vision of the future that's a lot better than where we are today and that's why i get up every morning because i think you know that future isn't going to deliver itself and and describe describe the products what what comes out the other side i mean these are beautiful products from the fire hose you know bags wallets belts through to other things that you're creating it describe what they are and, and how they look and feel so we we have a, I, I guess kind of a design mo elvis is the is the chief designer and he is he is definitely a, a genius um but what we focus on because our materials are so wild and wacky we focus on cl- sort of classic timeless design and really utilitarian goods so it has to look good it has to be designed for way beyond a single season you know, the, the, the belts that we have, we think that's it. You get one belt from us and you shouldn't really need another belt ever. You know, I don't, I don't expect anyone to buy two belts from me, that kind of thing. And, and the products are just, they're beautifully handcrafted and well-made. And, and we back that up. I mean, we have a repair or replace system. Any, anything can come back to us. We had a, a messenger bag come back to us the other day that has been, that has been someone's cycling companion for seven years. And and it had developed a little tear in the lining on the inside. And, you know, we fixed the lining, but we also gave the bag a full MOT and sent it out. And, you know, we'll probably see that that bag again in seven years. And that just gives mm-hmm. us an enormous sense of, of joy and pride that somebody, that someone likes that bag enough to use it every day for you know, basically since we started making that bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. You're, you're giving a kind of lifetime guarantee for your products, are you? You're saying that even if they were 10, 20 years old, they could still, people could still send them back and you'd repair them and, and ship them out again. Is that how it work? Yeah. Uh, we, we, we've had, you know, probably my favorite story was a lady who put, um, who put her bag next to her rabbit hutch and the, and the rabbit chewed through a handle. And, you know, she sent that back to us. We replaced the handle and sent it out again. And, and, I, and, and we, don't, we don't charge for that kind of thing because for, for me, for us, the, the goal is for these bags to live a long life, longer than, than the fire hose even got a chance to survive. Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't happen if there's a little minor problem with it and then it languishes in the, in the, you know, in the back of a closet somewhere. Yeah, or, or worse, still ends up in in the bin when, and ends up in the same yeah. place it would have done anyway. I guess. Uh, yeah. I love love yeah. that model. So, so most of your products are made here in the UK, right? Or, or is some made abroad? How does the manufacturing work? We have um, uh, we have two factories, and they're both ours. So we're we're vertically integrated. One is in Kent, and one is in Istanbul. So interest interesting weekend for us. This one. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah. And for the for the guys for the guys there who actually just thought it was um, you know like like nothing had happened I, I you know they, they seemed a very uh, relaxed group <laughs> but um, it, we have these two amazing sites and I would say manufacturing is divided up pretty evenly across the two right okay yeah okay. and so, so how many very much shared and and how many people do you employ there are ten of us right okay so. 
I'm reluctant to get you know political on this show. Not something we often do. But but what what did you make of the the kind of Brexit vote here in the UK, and and how is that likely to affect your business in the future? Well, I think primarily, um, you know, it it was a really sort of a sad vote. You know, the whole campaign was sad. Um, you know, there was it was just filled with misinformation on on all sides, and and just no positive messaging. Not enough positive messaging about really the amazing things that we do benefit from um, as being part of Europe. Uh, I worry from an R&D perspective for us. We have a lot of people we collaborate with in terms of material science and where we can go. Currently, we're working on um, a geometrics project with Cambridge University. And I guess what makes me the saddest about something like Brexit is that you know, 30% of Cambridge's uh, research funding comes from the EU. Mm. And will, will that money still be available? And will the UK still be um, a destination for the best and the brightest minds? And and it's sad also because it shows that we're a really divided country and that there is a lot of people in the UK that really feel that globalization has not worked for them and that the European Union has not worked for them. And I don't disagree with that sentiment on their behalf. I just think that the, the governments we've had over the last 15, 20 years have been really, really poor at making sure that the success of the UK and, and the wealth of the UK is distributed enough to make people feel part of, of the enterprise or the, the, the goals of the country. So, it, you know, it wasn't a, a moment of failure there. It was kind of decades of failure. And it, mm. and it all came out on the night. And, and I was listening to someone talk about the, you know, the, the, the U.S. political situation in the same way today, saying that people everywhere are just angry and that's that's going to res- potentially result in Donald Trump too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Which I guess is, that, that's deeply depressing. Well, it is. It's very worrying. And I guess that the fallout of Brexit, I guess, will not be realised for for a while yet. We're not entirely sure what it what it means, but uh, it doesn't no. sound like you're particularly positive about it, which I understand. Uh, yeah. I mean, you touched on, you know, what you mentioned there about the, the projects you've been running with Cambridge and other projects in the past with, with Sainsbury's. Um, yeah. what, what are the other kind of projects that you, you're involved with in terms of uh, big corporates using your expertise in, in the kind of uh, the whole remanufacturing space circular economy space any other projects you can tell us about i think we 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 always have an open mind with with partnerships we're currently talking to a couple of international groups about things that we could do together um i've been uh, i've been working with grant thornton for a while as an innovation advisor and that's been very very interesting for me because it's it's talking to a totally new group of people uh, that I wouldn't necessarily have access to about how to how to reimagine the world in terms of business models, and and that's been enormous, enormously rewarding and fun for me, and, and hope, certainly hopefully for them too. Um, I think there's there's just so much appetite on our end to work with uh, with larger companies, and and I think the biggest partnerships that are going to come down the pipe for us in the next, let's say. Um, year to two years are going to be with our leather waste partners because right. we're we're working on really really substantial plans with them, and they're all big, lovely, wonderful known brands. They are the, the best of British leather craft, and it's wonderful to work with them because they do understand that the world is changing it. That they need to uh, look after their raw materials and look after their waste. Yeah, so leather's very much going to be where it's at for you in the next 
in the next decade, I guess, uh, Chris. Yeah. Interesting how someone like, you know, a company like Grant Thornton might, might use you and your expertise and your, your kind of background. Uh, because, you, you know, you're not from a traditional design background, are you? I mean, where, yeah. where did you come from? How did you arrive at, at setting up a luxury goods business like Elvis and Cressy? I think the thing that they find is that I'm not from any background, so I am so far outside any box that I definitely am not that, you know, left, left field thinking kind of person. Um, I, I started, uh, I wanted to start a bar. I, I, I did politics at university. I, I studied Chinese. I wanted to go to Shanghai and open a bar after university because I was trying desperately to avoid having to go to law school, which is where I think my family envisioned me going. And I got, uh, I got hired by a venture capital group in Hong Kong, kind of totally accidentally and worked with them for a couple of years before starting my own business, which was a biodegradable packaging business. So the the experience that I had with a VC was wonderful. It showed me that if you run a business and you make money, you can do whatever you want. So I thought, wow, business is a great way to affect change, as long as you're not a psychopath or something like that. Um, and, and from then on, pretty much, I was focused on trying to work out what would be the best green business model to pursue. And when I met Elvis and discovered that he had these amazing hidden talents and when we found the fire hose, I think it was just lots of things coming together at the right time. Yeah, and the whole thing coming together. And, and, and let's talk about Elvis just briefly. I mean, what, what's it like? Because he's also your, your partner as well. Yeah. Um, what's it like living and working and, and sharing your life um, in this way and, and running a business in this way? I mean, I guess we, we've spoken before about, you know, this kind of work-life blend uh, that some people are experimenting with. I guess, the, the, you know, the boundaries between work and life for you are very, very blurry. Uh, how, yeah. how, does that, how does that work? Yeah, well, there, there are no boundaries for us. You know, we have a life and it involves work and it involves not work. And there are, the, uh, there are some downs to it. You know, if I have a bad day, he's, he's genuinely having a bad day too. Um, but I, I just can't imagine doing it any other way. When you, when you meet someone like Elvis, who is like the coolest, funniest, most talented, interesting, uh, intelligent, funny, I don't know, I could, I could go on and on person, you certainly don't want to start a business with anyone else because why would I spend all that time with someone else? If, if you know, we've got one life, I want to enjoy it to, to the absolute max and that means spending as much time with Elvis as possible because I learn things from him every day and I'm challenged by him every day. And I, I can't, I just can't imagine working in any other way. It's even... It's, it's, it's hard for me to do a day a week um, uh, out of the office sometimes because I just think, gosh, i got to get back to, to the boys. So Elvis and, and our dog, our little dog, Monty. So yesterday I, was got, I, I left at you know, 8 in the morning and didn't get back till midnight. And I was just on the train just sort of going, oh, I can't wait to get back. This is so great. Um, so, yeah, for me, I know, this, I know that this is not the same for a lot of couples and that yeah. their relationships work in different ways. Uh, for us, this this seems this definitely seems to work, and it's just because we enjoy each other's company so much. Yeah, yeah, we are very, very lucky. Uh, so we so we know how the business has evolved in the last few years. But what comes next? You mentioned the leather. Is it about finding other waste streams? Is it about you know amazing new products? Is it about partnerships? I guess it's about all of those things, isn't it? But what what's going to be the focus? I guess for the next couple of years, at least. For 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 us, it's really uh, so we've got these 
this system with the leather and currently that allows us to make two or three dimensional geometric shapes only. So the big step for us is to add new shapes to the system so that we have limitless potential in what can be constructed or deconstructed. And that, that is what we, we, we've been talking to Cambridge about over the last um, six months, is how we, how we design a project between us that will deliver that as a result. So that's going to, even if we were able to sort of gather the, the R&D budget together and, and get going on that ASAP, it's going to take us the next two years to, to trial and test and develop and tweak that system. All the while, we will be selling rugs and selling the products that we can make um, because you, <laughs> that's the only way to finance R&D, right? But, um, but, but yeah, we're, we're really focused on making this an absolutely um, amazing system. And it's never been done before, something this circular and, and this in the luxury space with leather has never been done before. So it, it genuinely is a, a world's first, and, and we're almost there. We're, we're just getting so close all the time with it. Well, it's hugely exciting, and I, I love the brand. I love the ethos and the, and the kind of mission around it. My wife still has her Elvis and Cressy purse, which I, I think I bought, was it last year now? Yeah, uh, yeah. And she gets so many comments about it. Bright yellow decommissioned fire hose, just absolutely brilliant. And testament to what you were saying about you know building products to last. Um, but Cressy, it's been great to have you on the show, and, uh, and I encourage everybody to go and, and check out your website and have a look at what you guys are up to. Uh, but Cressy, for now, thank you for sharing with us the story and uh, we wish you all the very best with it. Thanks, Tom. Cressy Westling there, co-founder of Elvis and Cressy. Such a great story and so lovely to hear from a businesswoman so passionate about solving some of these massive challenges and having such drive to, to well, achieve as much as she can through what is a splendid company and a brilliant little brand. Uh, all the links to Elvis and Cressy's products and the website uh, are on our website at betterbusiness.show. Uh, so check those out. And obviously, let me know what you think of Elvis and Cressy in the usual way. Uh, you can email me, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk or I'm on LinkedIn or you can find me on Twitter at Tom Idle. Right, it's time for a brief update on the news from across the world of sustainable business. Let's find out who's doing what and why with Vicky Knowles. Vix, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, Tom? Yeah, all right. Not too bad. Are you ready to rumble again with a, another roundup of weekly sustainable business news? Yes, as always. You can't wait, can you? Um, let <laughs> me start this week. I want to draw your attention to a new report from Transparency International. Uh, which reveals that emerging market multinationals, that's these big corporates that have, have gone into emerging markets, uh, and it says they're f you know, being far from responsible global citizens uh, with really low transparency standards and weak anti-corruption policies that have barely improved over the last few years. Um, so they've released this assessment. I'm not sure if they do this every year, but this is obviously the latest one. And it says that 75 out of the 100 companies they looked at scored less than 5 out of 10 overall for transparency and scored an average of 48% for disclosure of their anti-corruption programs. And it makes the point that they're operating in places that you know have huge problems, whether it's you know Brazil's massive corruption scandals 
or missing funds involving Malaysia's Prime Minister, uh, the Panama Papers, which obviously exposed loads of kind of uh, offshore tax havens. And it makes the point that, you know, these companies are just not uh, performing very well. They're basically ignoring important transparency and accountability uh, accountability uh, measures. Um, and makes the point that you know the companies in question hold important place in in regional and global markets, whether it's in Brazil or Russia or India, um, accounting for about thirty percent of the world's output. These these types of countries right now, uh, the so-called BRICS economies, um, and yeah, it's definitely worth a look. This this one, it's a, it's an interesting uh, NGO report. Looks at three main things and then kind of ranks a whole bunch of companies that have entered into emerging markets. Looks at things like reporting. Uh, of anti-corruption programs, how they're disclosing their company structures and holdings, uh, how they're disclosing key financial information on a kind of country-by-country basis. Um, Yeah, staggering. 75% of them not doing what they should be, Vix. Not good, not good. Um, It reminds me of your episode with Simon uh, Biltcliffe at Webmart, um, because he was pretty uh, pro-transparency and what was it he said? Doing what making your mum proud <laughs> i wonder it. how multinationals can say that yeah it's interesting interesting uh yeah so what else you got going on okay so um i think especially lately in terms of brexit and stuff we feel a bit like helpless in the world um and i think we're all told that signing or even starting a petition doesn't really make a difference but you might have heard that last week um tesco uh, announced that it's going to stop selling eggs from cage hens following a 14-year-old's petition. So Lucy Gavin launched a petition on change.org earlier in the year, urging Tesco to stop selling eggs from caged hens, calling the farming practice cruel, unnatural and inhumane, and gathered over 280,000 signatures. And then Tesco then announced the change in a press release, which they said followed a detailed review of its egg sourcing strategy, consulting with suppliers, industry experts and other key stakeholders. It's also worth noting that Lucy had a meeting with Tesco in May, um, at which point they had not agreed to make the change. Um, So apparently 43% of the 1.4 billion eggs sold by Tesco each year come from cage hens with the date of 2025 giving them time to fade them out. Um, And now Lucy's created a new petition targeting Morrison's and Asda, um, which are the only other supermarkets to still be selling from caged eggs. So could this be the end of eggs from caged hens being sold in all big UK supermarkets? I hope so. I got the email this morning. Did you get the email this morning from from change.org? Uh, from Lucy uh, I don't think I did actually yeah she, I'm basically saying exactly what you just said that she's now going to target Morrison's Asda I think it's just brilliant isn't it and it's mm. you know people power in action and, and this is what big companies are most scared of right now you know yeah. it was always about Greenpeace or other sort of big NGOs targeting them and and, and sort of deep, doing sort of deep dive investigative kind of campaigns but now I mean this is the power of social media in action as, which has just absolutely transformed well, the whole landscape, and it creates so much anxiety, I suspect, for for businesses right now. There's just no hiding place, is there? No. It's, it's just brilliant. I love it. I lo- absolutely love it. Um, yeah. yeah, I changed it all. I think they, they went for a bit of a refresh this, this week, didn't they? I think they're now going to start doing crowdfunding. Uh, but it's a brilliant site. I typed into in, uh, Tesco in the search engine of change.org this week. 103 different campaigns running against Tesco. Ooh. Uh, and then I thought, actually, this could be quite fun. So I typed in Sainsbury's, 32, mm. Asda was 53, Coca-Cola, 188. 
<laughs> and I thought, actually, this might be quite an interesting way of ranking companies by assessing how pissed off the general public is with you. Wow. Uh, <laughs> were they quite similar campaigns or were they all quite different? They're, they're, they're targeting all sorts, whether it's wages, whether it's caged hens, whatever. But um, yeah, it's, quite, it's quite an interesting exercise. I suspect that the PR machines within some of these big companies is uh, well, it's very busy on some of these sites right now, seeing what people are yeah. talking about and... And uh, wow, it's, you are uh, exactly, exactly. Um, it's great though. It's it, really it, good. it really is. Uh, Tesco is another company that, that I mentioned in my second story today, Vix. Um, as you mentioned, we live in absolutely fascinating political times. Um, we don't know what's going on, do we? I mean, the last few weeks has just been incredible. The amount of change that's happened in, well, such a short space of time. Uh, but of course, you know, we have a new Prime Minister, Theresa May, uh, who used her first kind of days in office to really try and set her stall out as being this more progressive conservative. Um, and she really wants to make, you know, bridging the gulf between the top and bottom rungs of society uh, her thing in her premiership. Whether it'll happen or not is, is something else. But uh, it's interesting. I, I picked up on a piece here from, from Bloomberg this week. Um, which talks about the the difference between those at the, the top of the corporate ladder and, and those at the bottom, um, and it puts a number number of companies under the spotlight, not least the UK's retailers, um, and specifically looks at Tesco and its chief exec uh, Dave Lewis, who earned four point six three million pounds last year, um, meaning that less than two years into the job, his compensation was three hundred twenty one times higher than the average uh, sort of worker within the within the company uh, according to some research by a, a bunch called manifest um and then and blue this this bloomberg piece go, kind of talks to this guy called kamal foster who's one of tesco's 300,000 staff who basically stacks shelves and interviews him and, and it makes the point about the, the sort of ridiculous pay gap uh, between those running you know the biggest companies out there and those that are just working for them it's an interesting piece and i think it's an interesting issue and lots has been written about this and and spoken about this about you know living wages and human rights abuse particularly within supply companies but um you know it's an argument that i think will become closer to home particularly in the u.s in some of the developed countries as well uh especially with the kind of political rhetoric right now about closing that poverty divide um and you know and it's not just tesco every company has you know, has this on their radar or, or should have this on their radar now um, because I think I think Theresa May is planning to kind of make companies publish that ratio figure between chief executive pay and that of the average worker, which would be fascinating to, to look at. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting story, this one. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it makes me think of a story last year. I don't know if you heard about it. Um, Dan Price, the CEO of Seattle-based tech company Gravity, um, he, so he cut his salary by 90% to pay his workers at least $70,000 each um, because he earned a quote-unquote crazy amount. And that wow. was just like unprecedented. And he was like, oh, you know, I, I'm single and I live with a dog. You know, I'm not really that, uh, you know, I, I don't need that much money kind of thing. Um, so I don't know if it was also because they had money troubles as well. Right. Um, but it just it goes to show great great PR. I bet a lot of people learnt about them just from hearing about it in the news. Yeah, exactly. I think there's going to be lots more of this. There was a there was a study by uh, PwC where they interviewed workers and and said, well, what do you think? It's you know, what's what do you think is the appropriate amount for for a CEO to earn? And most mm -hmm. people said that they think the CEO should earn twenty times the average staff. 
so, uh-huh. you know, there's a massive gap at the minute and whether it be made up and whether we'll, we'll see some of those kind of approaches taken by, by the more progressive enlightened companies out there that, that see that, you know, this is a way to, to win over stakeholders and build kind of trust and, uh, and uh, reputation within their businesses. I don't know. I'm not too sure. I know Grant Thornton um, has, done, has done quite a lot in this, in this respect. And there's a few other companies out there. But particularly in the retail market, it seems that there's a massive discrepancy between um, the pay at the top and the bottom. So uh, we'll see what happens with that one. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Um, so my other story is maybe something that will cheer you up on a, a Monday commute home. Um, car parts made from tequila. Sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but Ford is teaming up with tequila producer Jose Cuervo to, del- de- ugh, to de- develop uh, sustainable bioplastics with the agave plant byproduct, such as for wiring harnesses, HVAC units, and storage bins. So apparently initial assessments are quite promising thanks to the material's durability and aesthetic qualities and developing a sustainable composite could cut vehicle weight and therefore lower energy consumption whilst reducing the use of petrochemicals and the impact of vehicle production on the environment. Um, so yeah, the, the growth cycle of the agave plant takes at least seven years and then the heart of the plant is harvested for distillation. But then there's remaining agave fibres that are some of them are used as compost for the farms, but um, it's definitely a more interesting way to to use the remnant fibres. What do you think? I, I love it, and again, you know, well, a it's a it's a another good example of two companies, you know, well known brands working together to do to do something interesting, and again, another great example of finding alternatives to plastic, and obviously something we touched on with uh, the guys at New Light Technologies a couple of weeks ago on the show. Uh, but actually, I mean, you know, Mark Karema, CEO of New Light, you know, made the point plastics are not necessarily a bad thing. And you can do some amazing things with plastics to kind of particularly in light weighting of, of vehicles, which I know has, has been happening a lot over the last sort of 10 years, really. Uh, and with, with fuel efficiency very much at the fore. But um, God, I think it's just a great it's a great story. And, you know, car companies have had a fairly bad rap in recent years. What with the. The VW scandal, uh, but so much innovation coming out of uh, the automotive sector right now, and this is a good example of that. So, do we know, Vix, whether this is just a pilot or whether they're going to be doing this at, at scale? Uh, I, um, I think it's like just in the testing stages, um, yeah. just sort of a promising thing that should ha- help in the future. But um, yeah, it's quite interesting because it's it's benefiting like both their sustainable um, kind of goals for the future. You know, it's. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's in, it's a good story. It's interesting. Like, well, we'll, we'll we'll put all the links to all all of our today's stories and our reference points in the show notes. Uh, but Vix, as ever, thanks for joining us, and um, I'm off for a tequila. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week. Thanks, Vix, for your usual update. Um, so if you've been tuning in for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been doing a, a different segment on the show looking at big ideas for a sustainable future. And we've teamed up with the guys at Terrafinity, which is a, a consultancy that works with various companies and organizations helping them develop leadership in ecological, social and business value. Uh, so delighted to be working with Terrafinity. And we've helped them launch their brand new series of ebooks. Uh, which offer thoughts, provocations and big ideas for how we might create a sustainable future on a planet of 9 billion people. 
so we've been asking Joss to to come on the show every week and share with us his big uh, his best big ideas uh, all taken from this this brilliant series of, of books uh, and now we have the fourth and penultimate in the series uh, so here's Joss <laughs> I agree 10%, the principle of minimum consensus. How many times can we honestly say that we really agree 100% with someone else on an issue? It's certainly not unknown, however it can be quite rare. Often, this is because finding points of disagreement with other people is one of the ways that we establish legitimacy and expertise in addition to bolstering our sense of self. Put simply, whilst we might almost totally agree with someone on an issue, we can also be motivated to find and highlight the nuances of where and how our understanding, or unrecognised genius, and clear thinking provides us with a more accurate, pragmatic or relevant analysis. The private intent of this behaviour is pretty clear. It allows us to feel good about ourselves and superior to others as an aspect of our contribution. However, the net public outcome of such activities can arrest the chance of progress. By highlighting and focusing upon minor, inconsequential points of detail, it can undermine the possibility of consensus and action on really important stuff. Turning to the murky little backwater of the world that is sustainability, the practice of arguing the nuance of everything is rather aggravating and perverse. For instance, you get collections of people who all fundamentally agree that business as currently configured is unsustainable, that capitalism systems of value need to change, and that humanity needs to respond rapidly, innovatively and creatively in order to build an equitable, resilient and sustainable world. However, despite this, they will also argue endlessly over why the points they make in the service of these aims are somehow superior, more appropriate, more intelligent or based upon more years in the service of a better world than their correspondence. This is, of course, ridiculous and won't get any of us anywhere. One way to reduce the time we spend disagreeing over things that are far less important than the things that we agree upon is to consider the degree of consensus required in a given situation. To ask, what do we really need to agree upon in order to work together? By working together, I mean a variety of things. At its most basic level, it's that we're willing to act with a collaborative and constructive intent in face-to-face -face and online discussions. At higher levels, it means joint enterprise, mutual dependence and partnership for the common good. The unspoken default position in many sustainability discussions is, can't you see how clever I am? Which is not a good starting point for shared action. If we really want to make a positive contribution to a sustainable future, we need to get beyond such blatant ego polishing and figure out just what levels of consensus are required. The levels of required consensus concept is not a new one. For instance, it was explored in the questions and answers proposed by the great moral philosophers John Locke and John Stuart Mill, while considering the limits of liberty in relation to the rights and responsibilities of both the individual and the state. A directly applicable description of the principle to the challenge of sustainable change was articulated by the author, academic and politician Michael Ignatieff. He defined minimalism as an outlook capable of accommodating the fact that people from different cultures may continue to disagree about what is good, but nevertheless agree about what is insufferably, unarguably wrong. The role of consensus in change is a complex one. Across human history, change has frequently taken place at the behest or whim of those individuals with the opportunity and ability, or power, to make decisions regardless of the views of and consequences for others. Change via dictatorship or tyranny is not known for prioritising consensus. 
For those of us lucky enough to live in democratic countries, some form of consensus, or at least the ability to exercise or indicate our views, is at the heart of our concepts of freedom. Similarly, the majority of us interested in contributing towards a sustainable and equitable world innately believe that consensus is a fundamental component of achieving that change. You cannot have an equitable world where only certain voices are heard. If we are capable of endlessly arguing about essentially irrelevant details and topics we fundamentally agree upon, wouldn't it be logical to stop seeking total agreement? If constantly aspiring for total consensus on every aspect of existence is fruitless, we need to move from asking, why doesn't anyone recognise that my analysis of the world is better than yours? To, how much consensus do we really need to create something together? Shouldn't we therefore tend towards desiring a minimum level of consensus? These challenges are discussed, explored and overcome in sustainability as elsewhere. The existence and success of truly participatory multi-stakeholder initiatives are a testament to that. Each successful multi-stakeholder process started with the development of an appropriate level of consensus. Such a level doesn't preclude disagreement in total, it's just that everyone agrees to abide by the level of consensus required for achieving a shared goal. This means that they might disagree on many things, but that the disagreement is not bigger than the wider purpose of their joint endeavour. An example, and there are many out there, of minimum consensus in practice can be found in multi-stakeholder initiatives such as the programmes facilitated by IDH, the Dutch Sustainable Trade Initiative, focused around sustainability and supply issues in key global commodity chains. The initiatives bring together organisations involved in, as participants and stakeholders, the production, supply and sales of that commodity. For instance, the IDH COCO initiative involves a number of companies which actively compete for market share and NGOs that may be critical of business. However, they agree that without significant changes to the sustainability and resilience of the supply chain, all of their interests will suffer. The levels of consensus sought by such an initiative are significant but essentially low. Participants agree upon relatively few points of fundamental and unarguable fact. Of course, griping about the levels of pointless argument in online and real-life contexts is hardly a new or earth-shattering thing to do. Many initiatives and websites don't really exist to be drivers of collective collaborative knowledge, but as portals for self-promotion and intellectual self-aggrandizement, and few of us are truly innocent of at least a little of each. Nevertheless, the motive behind this idea is a positive one. If we are to achieve a sustainable and equitable world, we need to work together there is no discussion to be had on that point. Finding the fundamental points of shared human experience and aspiration is key. It is clear that at the level of globally shared values, humans show a striking degree of agreement on what they aspire to for themselves and their children. A glance at the World Values Survey provides ample testament to that. Developing and applying the principle of minimum consensus might be one thing we could all agree on, if only a little. Joss Tantrum, founding partner of Terrafinity there. Uh, the Towards 9 Billion ebook series is out now and can be downloaded for free at the Terrafinity website, www.terrafinity.com. 
Uh, we'll also have the links uh, to those books in the show notes uh, accompanying this episode. Uh, so we'll have more of Joss uh, for the final and fifth time next week um, as we enjoy that series. Uh, great to have him on. Thanks, Joss. Um, anyway, that's it for another week. Thanks again for tuning in. You can subscribe to the show as ever via iTunes, via SoundCloud. There's a whole host of different ways to find us on different apps uh, from TuneIn and Deezer. Uh, to Stitcher as well, so check those out. Uh, We'll be back again next Monday, so until then, goodbye.